On the final and climactic day of the feast, Jesus, Jesus took his stand. He cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Rivers of living water will brim and spill out of the depths of anyone who believes in me this way, just as the scripture says. He said this in regard to the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were about to receive. The Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Those in the crowd who heard these words were saying, This has to be the prophet. Others said, He is the Messiah, saying, The scriptures tell us that the Messiah comes from David's line and from Bethlehem, David's village. Thank you, Bethany. <laughs> Man, it's one of those days, isn't it? <laughs> hey, so again, here we are a few weeks from Advent having spent what the church calendar calls ordinary time. If you're familiar with the church calendar at all, ordinary time, which is starts after Easter or the day after Pentecost, depending on what tradition um, uh, you're following, and leads us all the way up into Advent and Christmas. But we've spent this kind of ordinary time in the ordinary things, right? The ordinary, everyday, foundational and granular context in which life is made. Where it's made whole and holy, free and flourishing, or something less. So the last seven months, we've been trying to ask the question that we believe our scriptures and our faith actually answers. Namely, what does God require of humanity to live, full and forever? For all the things that scripture tells us, this is the thing that scripture answers for us most clearly and most evidently. What does God require for humanity to live, full and forever? I mean, think about it. how this story starts, right? God starts with humanity, living. Where does humanity come from? Where does its life come from? A life that's meant to be full and forever, and yet, because of sin, because of choice, because of all those things, there's a brokenness, right? And yet the rest of the story doesn't end there. The rest of the story is saying, so how do we get back to something like what was there before what was broken? This is a, this is a question that our scriptures answers. The question of our faith in Scripture that we've been, um, that we treasure, that we've been digging up by asking a few questions kind of built off that question. Like, what is required to live resurrected and true? What does a resurrected life require of us? A life in rhythm with the Creator and work and rest and work again. Sabbath and work, work and Sabbath, right? Or what is required to live free? To build a life on the simple basics of the ten words. To be ones who aren't bound and enslaved by the way we relate to God and to others, but live in a way that actually is in peace as well as brings peace? Or what is required to flourish, to live whole, complete, blessed in our basic freedom, to live a life different and deeply amid the anxious unrest of our cultural moment? Well, we said we entered to do so. We entered the day, our interactions, our own hearts aware, aware of what's going on in us, what's going on around us, but more, even more so, of who we are in God. As we've discovered, our faith and our scriptures presume that life true, whole and free, is a life caught up in a grand existence, a majesty pulsating in every granular corner of existence, life bound not by circumstances of time, nor opposition to freedom, nor even by our own sin, our brokenness, our failures of relation, or even by the app structures we construct to keep us faithful, i.e. the church, as we began to talk about last week. Life in the life light is the image Van Gogh's prophetic portrait paints, a world alive like the prophet Isaiah declared, 
For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. The mountains and the hills, the trees and the fields, and our lives of joyous wholeness and completeness, blessedness, or peace, join with creation together to declare the wonder and amazement of God for us and God with us. That's really what the image, if we can go throw that back up, yeah, that's really what the image that Van Gogh is trying to create, right? That the world all around us is alive, alive with life, a world reverberating with the life of the heavens in all, well, almost all the places the kingdom of God can be found. The one still and darkened space in Van Gogh's picture, if you remember last week, is the church. The community and structure meant to help us live out and mature into the fullness of our faith, which is often the centering structure in our lives of faith, isn't it? Yet this place is not where the life takes place, not where we see the light life and where our attention and ambition should orbit. Van Gogh's painting portrayed a world glowing with the glory of the graciousness and majesty of our God, full of the life light of Jesus, a world alive in which the structure of the place of faith can be, but is not necessarily vibrating with life. The granaries of existence reverberate. They pulsate with the life of the heavens. This is the image Van Gogh gives us, right? That's how we ended last week. Like trying to be drawn out into, not just to see the, the darkened church as a critique, but to see that life happens far outside of whatever kind of structure we think of as church. Whatever, whether it be a physical structure, some sort of more um, rhythmic structure, or some behavioral structure, or process structure, uh, or habitual structure, whatever it may be. The life pulsates with the life of the heavens all around us. In some ways, I would hope, and I would think part of the reason why this painting is probably one of the, the most famous paintings and, and like repainted paintings in history, is that it's something about this painting stirs something deep in us, an awe and a wonder for us. And at the root of our faith is awe. I mean, isn't it ironic that at some level Van Gogh wants us to, to recognize that the, the place we've seated our faith in this church building, the darkened kind of structure in the center there, is the thing that doesn't draw us into worship, but it's looking at everything around it, the life and the light in everything around it, that draws us to worship, right? To awe and amazement. Because in truth, the, the place of our faith, the root of our faith, is awe, is reverence, an awareness and appreciation of the grandeur and mystery and beauty of the world surrounding us. The life in which all of our lives are actually lived. Awe, says Rabbi Abraham Heschel, is the beginning and gateway of faith. The first precept of all, and upon it the whole world is established. Awe is the beginning and gateway of faith. The first precept, the first law and rule and statute, to be in awe of God and His majesty. And upon it, the whole world is established. It's this awe, this reverence and openness to transcendence to a world more than our own that keeps us hungering, thirsting for a life more different and deeper, isn't it? A life that, it's this, 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 this hunger for all, this recognition of all, this openness to, to all, that lets us know that the things in life that maybe momentarily satisfy don't really satisfy. It's the things that, that make the good not ultimately good, right? Because we know there's something more that we're actually after. 
Yet our faith and our scriptures presume that life good, life true, life beautiful, life whole and free is neither an entitled destiny of humanity nor the inevitable outcome of our struggle for it or even our success in finding it or even our desire to see the kingdom of God come on earth as it is in heaven. Instead, it is entered, experienced, in relating rightly to God and others. That is to say that life, true, whole, and free, requires something of us. Something more than our grit or our longing or even our need. Our scriptures teach us that the thing that we long for, the thing that, that we're after, is it something we're entitled to and isn't an inevitable outcome, but something that, is, that has a requirement for us. That indeed life, good, true, and beautiful, first and foremost requires a response to the good, to the true, to the beautiful, to the whole himself, the holy trinity, right? As we prayed in um, um, St. Patrick's prayer this week, if you, if, you, if you read the pastoral note, the one who offers himself, life himself, with and within us. You see, faith is first and foremost a response to that relationship, to dine without pay, as Isaiah said, on the abundance of life in his commitment to us. Listening in the presence so that our souls may live, that our souls might overflow, as it were, with life, as Jesus said, the life of God in us. All in responsiveness, keep us living by faith. All responsiveness keep us living by faith, true, whole, and free. Freedom. That's a word that we like, right? Right? It's a word. True we get, our true selves, our genuine selves, who God's made us to be. Whole we understand, a, a life that is complete, where, where it's not fractured and broken, but something that, that, is, that is good, Right? But free, free is a word that maybe kind of gets lost in our, um, in our place in history, right? Free is a word that kind of takes us away from anything that might bind us and, and, and leads into just kind of whatever we may think it is. But freedom contends, again, the good rabbi Heschel, presupposes an openness to transcendence at all. And a person has to be responsive before they can be responsible. Freedom, as we'll chat a little bit about next week, comes with great responsibility. But our responsibility comes first and foremost from an openness to transcendence, an awe and wonder, and a responsiveness to that awe and wonder. But I think responsibility is where our orientation to God and to one another in the world tends to skew. Responsibility is, I think, why we build churches and create structures to help us live faithfully. Physical representations of what we're responsible for in our faith, right? I mean, don't we want to be, as, as people of God, as the church, ones who live faithfully, who do what we need to do in order to, to live a life full and forever, right? What's our responsibility? But as the a rabbi said, and as our scriptures and faith attest, responsibility flows from all in response, not vice versa. 
Here's how another prophet, a contemporary of Isaiah, a prophet named Micah says it. What shall I come before the Lord? With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? What can I offer the Lord to live? That's what the, the prophet's saying. What can I offer the Lord to live? To live full and forever. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? The traditional offerings that are aligned in the Levitical law? With calves a year old, do I give him what he's asked for in his own, in the own stipulations of the community, right? Will the Lord be pleased with the thousands of rams? So beyond just the basics, what if I brought just an abundance? Thousands of rams. With ten thousands of rivers of oil. Is it just, is it following the letter of the law? Or is it giving, or is it, is it doing the things that I have to do in abundance? Above and beyond whatever could, might be imagined. Is it the grandness of what I offer? Or the, or the specifics and the, the validness of what I offer? Shall I give, says the, 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 uh, the prophet, shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. Thinking of the Exodus, right? Do I give my firstborn? Do I give up? My firstborn, the, the, my flesh, in order that my sin might be covered? Am I willing to go all the way to that? Is that what the Lord requires? Does the Lord require not just following the letter of the law, not just going above and beyond into abundance of right, right and good? Does the Lord require grand sacrifice? Self-sacrifice for the sin of my soul. But the prophet says, God, he has told you, O man, what is good. He's told you what a good life is and how to get it. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? We've interpreted the prophetic words of Micah mathematically rather than relationally. We've reduced our life of faith to if I do justice, if I am kind, and if I am humble, that equals a good or godly life. And now, we can factor in whatever you want into A, whatever justice means. Is it just the letter of the law? Is it, is it going into abundance far beyond what it is? Is it some sort of sacrificial thing that goes to, to even, even a self-sacrifice thing? Same thing for kindness. Same thing for humility. If we just, if we just amp it up, do, is it just a minimum or is it amped up at a different level? But we, we try to figure out what to put into A, B, and C. Because if we can add all those up together, then we have a good life. We have a godly life. And in some ways, this is why we build churches. Right? So yeah, there's the, the reducing math. A plus B plus C equals a good life. <laughs> godly life, right? But then that goes back into why we create these centering structures. Justice and kindness are our responsibilities. We become, they become the requirements for making life good, which in proper turn become the church's activities, right? Because isn't that what we're trying to do with our church activities? We're trying to get it right, to make sure we've got all the pieces of the formula put together in order that we might get in on the good life. But we let the finishing phrase, I think, in Micah's sentence... Because listen, like we can, we can, we can, in some ways, we can program out justice and kindness, right? We can make activities out of just doing justice and loving kindness. Sorry, this is so 
making so much noise. Whether that be service opportunities, whether that be the way that we preach and teach, whether that be the way that we organize and what we do, we can figure out how to, in activity, be just and kind. But we let the last phrase, this walk humbly with our God, often just get reduced to be humble. But in reality, and in the, in the original language, the finishing phrase is a presumed phrase. It presumes to have come before as a source of justice and kindness. Instead, we, as Isaiah and Van Gogh have painted for us, and Micah concurs, we should expand the equation, not reduce it. Rather, it should be more like a... Um, I always forget the name of this in math, but what, so somebody can help me. Like, what's the... Like a word problem, isn't that what we call it? Whereas, like, you have to read the paragraphs and figure out what's going on. Everybody hated those, right? Maybe not. Maybe some of you loved them. Um, but you had to figure out, right? This is more like a word problem than, like, A plus B plus C equals, equals D, right? It's an expanded equation. Walking with God is the good... For when we are humble, when we're in awe and response, isn't that what humility is? Awe and responsiveness to God. When we're humble to God as we go, we'll do and love what God does. We'll do justice because God is just. If we're walking with him, because remember what he says, not just be humble with God, walk with God in humility. Go about your day in awe and responsiveness to God. That's what humble means, right? And do it with. Not in one little place. Not in like Van Gogh's painting where like, like go in and, and be humble inside the building and then walk out and hope that you can carry that humility with you, right? No, it's in the place where life is happening. Be humble. Walk with God into the place where God actually is. You'll do justice and you'll do what God loves. The little translation of, of love kindness is actually steadfast kindness. A steadfast kindness towards the lowly and the needy. That you're persistently kind. Kind through all the hard things and the difficult things. You won't just do what's right, but you'll do what's right in a way that has deep compassion. Patient compassion. Persevering compassion. In the same way that God has done what's right towards us. Has acted justly towards us with compassion. Right? Because if he just acted justly towards us, well, we wouldn't be here, would we? But he's acted justly in compassion. It's a combination of those things that actually makes life good. A life lived humbly in awe and responsiveness with our God, that is a good or blessed life, as Jesus would call it. A walking with that takes us into the places outside the sanctuary where we can do justice and love kindness, where in all and responsiveness, we might not only engage in life as God engages us with just compassion, but participate, follow God already at work all around us in the world where life is actually taking place. Or to say it another way, to orbit Jesus is to live by faith. To center our lives around Jesus, to let Jesus be the, 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 the one which our lives move in and out of, is a life lived by faith, a life of awe and responsiveness in our bound relationships and responsibilities. 
This is the way we've shown it in my really fancy clip art graphic. Yes. Rather than church existing here, we come to it in hopes that we might be able to go back and live faithfully in our marriages, in our workplaces, in our friendships, in, in our community, in all the places that we go. Listen, there's nothing wrong with that. A part of that's true, right? We come to a place like this, a time like this, with people like this, to reground us and recenter us so that we might live with Jesus outside of this place. But remember, we say we want to follow Jesus, we'll be with Jesus outside of this place. Not just go back into those, those places thinking, hey, we've got enough, we got enough of things right that we can go and that we can be faithful in, in there. But no, rather, the way we look at life should be the things that we do as a community, the things that we do as a community actually help us be aware of and responsive to Jesus in all the other things that actually make up life. In all the other places that actually make up life. And I know that may seem weird for a church to talk about church isn't the center of things. But what happens when we base our, even our faith on activities is we create a loyalty to the thing that we're active in. We create a loyalty to an institution, right? Rather than the one that we're actually called into loyalty to, to faithfulness to, which is Jesus. And our tendency as humans, this has been the case from the very beginning, right? Is it's easier to be institutionally loyal than it is to be ones who walk faithfully with Jesus throughout our days. To walk faithfully with God, right? And that doesn't mean that, that, that because churches exist that they're wrong or they're bad or that we've somehow completely missed it. Remember what we talked about last week? What we said is the way that we end up centering our lives around church gets us just a little bit off the mark. It misses at things just a tad bit. But that just a tad bit keeps us off, if we're faithful to our scriptures, keeps us off the, the place where life really is lived deeply and richly and fully. Which is in Jesus, with others. So the activities of our community, if you, if you look at this, right, all the activities of our community, our community of faith, the body of Christ, to whom we are connected and contribute and move through life, following Jesus together, we're not saying that we don't do that. Like we're not saved individually, we're saved together, but we're, we're not, we don't, like we're, I, I can't remember who I was talking to about this this week, but um, our scriptures never tell us to grow up into the church, do they? To mature into the church. Can you, does, does anybody know, like any, can anybody find that? Does anybody remember that anywhere? What does our scriptures tell us to grow up into? Into Christ, who is the head of the church. There's just a slight difference, right? Like our maturation isn't to get better at doing this thing. Our maturation is to get better at actually being who God's made us to be, fully and completely, to play our part in the kingdom together. The activities of our community of faith are meant to, like the Cypress and Van Gogh's portrait, the monuments in Isaiah's prophecy, they're meant to draw our attention, our all response to the life and light of God all around us within us and through whom we exist. That is, they're meant to cultivate a life of faith from, in, and through Jesus. And if you don't think Jesus is the center of the life that we're called to, here's what the Apostle Paul says. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Not the church, but Jesus. The firstborn of all creation. For by, or in, the little translation, in him, 
all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So if you'd miss that, everything is in Jesus, from Jesus, through Jesus. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything we, that he, not we, that he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile him to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Again, the activities of our community of faith, the body of Christ to whom we connect and contribute and move through life following Jesus together are meant to help us cultivate all in response to that life, to our life in Jesus' life, to Jesus, active in the lives all around us, because he's the one that's speaking life into everything around us. He's the one working, in, not just in us, but in those around us. He's the one redeeming and reconciling all things to himself. All the things that we do as a faith family, as a church, as a body of Christ, are meant to cultivate all in awareness in response to his life. So let's briefly mention some of those things. Real quick, I'll just leave this up on the screen. Let's see. There we go. Oh, nope. Sweet. All right. So, what do we do as a faith family? And how does this actually work out? Well, what, do we, what are our activities? Well, we gather. And isn't gathering, maybe gathering is probably the easiest thing to think about when we think about awe and response. Our, isn't our gathering an opportunity to lead one another, to be led into awe and response and worship and over food, whether that's a dinner or whether it's the table that Jesus has prepared for us, through study and reflection and communion and in prayer? I mean, doesn't the gathering, what else, what else do you gather for? But to be in awe and response to help us see and remember to recognize that the world we live in is like the world outside of the church building that Van Gogh paints for us, right? Full of life. That in this place, at its best, this time draws us into awe and response. That's what it's for. Sometimes we think of church as service or collective service being led into awe and response to God in and for our neighbors, the voiceless, the needy, and the longing. And in truth, as a faith family, we don't do a lot of collective service together. The collective service that we've done together over our decade has been service that's actually led by you. All the things that we've done, all the things that we've done formally as a, as a faith family in serving our neighbors is because you saw in your community, in your neighborhood, God led you into a people to see what he was doing and invite us to go join with you. So that our communal service is actually a response, again, to what God is doing in and through our neighbors through you. That's the way we've done service as a faith family. That doesn't mean we don't serve. In fact, there's, like, there, all of you serve in some sort of way. I know it because I know you. 
And sometimes you actually invite the rest of us to come along with you, which is pretty awesome, which is really what the church is meant to do, right? Because the church isn't us, this institution. The church is us together following Jesus, which means you have to follow Jesus, and you get to invite the church, your community, your body into life with you. Again, I'm not trying to knock service things, like if churches are doing have organized service deals. Most likely, they prayed about those things, they sought those things, they decided the Lord had called them into those things, right? But as a faith family, we believe you are the ones who get to lead us into service. Because it's your neighbors. It's your friends. It's you the one that the Lord has put a, a calling on for the, to be a voice for the voiceless. To be a reminder of the needy. To help connect to the longing, Right? Because if that's so, let's think about this just for a second. If that's so, if you're the one who is drawing others into that, inviting our faithfully into it, it means that you have been an all in response to God. You've paid attention and been aware. You've seen what Van Gogh sees outside of the walls. And you're inviting us into that with you. And some of you do that really well. You invite us all the time into those kind of things. And some of you, maybe you don't even know you can or should. You can, and you should, right? I mean, that's what it means to be a family. That's what it means to be a, a faith family. It's the ones who walk with each other in these things, right? And every once in a while, when we do a collective thing, the collective things always come out of somebody in our faith family. It's not me, usually. Who has prayed and asked and seeked and seen what the Lord sees and is inviting us into it? But it's all out of all in response. So those are kind of the collective worship and service. But what do we do outside of our collective worship and service? Well, we have a couple of things. Spiritual friendships and companions. Listen, it would, it would, be, it would be great <laughs> if we could reduce life to just a small set of people that we lived with and we walked with the same people from, from birth to death, right? That'd be kind of cool, right? It'd be pretty awesome. But in truth, we go through life. We find ourselves in places in life, sometimes with people we've known for a long time and are connected with, sometimes we don't. But what we do find and what's true of our faith's history is that wherever we're at in the journey, there's other pilgrims along with us. And sometimes they're with us for a long haul. And they're going to walk with us for a long time. And sometimes they're with us just for a stretch. But they're ones who are not just who we run into and have community with. That we get along with, that's great, that's cool. Like some of that may be true. Sometimes friendship is just like affinity and all that kind of stuff. But sometimes we find those people, sisters and brothers in Jesus, who are committed to mutually helping one another listen and respond to God with us. That's what distinguishes a spiritual friendship or companion from just a friend. Being willing to help us and be with us in listening and responding to God. These are people who help us discover and nurture one another's desire for God, for Christ-likeness, by supporting one another and discerning a way of life consistent with that desire. And listen, those people may or may not be a part of this faith family. Some of you have lived in Dallas for decades, right? 
you have spiritual friends and companions who are not a part of Christ City Church. And that's okay. Some of you have lived in other places and have spiritual friends and companions who aren't here, but who you regularly connect with. Not just to talk about the game or likes and dislikes or kids and life and whatever else is going on, but like maybe you talk about those things for sure, but what you end up really talking about, what, they, what really drives and connects you, is they ask you questions like Thomas Merton asks. Not what, I, what is going on like in all the little things in my life, but what do I think I'm living for in detail? This is the next slide if you don't mind, Amor. What do you think I'm living for in detail? And what I think, what do I think is keeping me from living fully for the thing that I want to live for? What am I living for in detail? Who are these people in your life that ask you that? What are you living for? What have you given yourself to? What has God called you to in all in response? And what's keeping you from living fully for that? Again, maybe it's not precisely in that, that, that question, right? They ask you that directly, but maybe that you could, right? It's kind of a helpful question. But they're the people who encourage you to listen and to respond to God. Who are those people? Maybe they're people here in, the, in this room, but maybe they're people who are not. But we want to make room for spiritual companions, to be spiritual companions, and to make sure that we have spiritual companions. And to not feel guilty, so you hear this, if they're not a part of our faith family, is selfishly as the pastor I'd want them to be, right? <laughs> like, like, but it's okay. Because, remember, we're not called to the church. We're called to Jesus. And, and because we're called to Jesus, to be built up in the maturity of Jesus, and God longs to finish what he started in us until we reach maturity, he will place friends in our lives, companions in our lives, who will walk with us no matter what church we're a part of. Nurture those. Be one who is one of those. Right? But we're, we're also a part of a church. Great. Cool. So what does it look like to be a part of this community, right? It's not all nebulous, right? There are some, there are some structures and, and rhythms. And so we have our gathered worship. We have sometimes on occasion collective service. But really what we have as a faith family are gospel communities. Communities of people who explicitly and consciously submit themselves to the direction and training of Jesus. All in response through the Holy Spirit and Scripture, so that we may pursue excellence in what? In becoming who we are in Jesus together. And that's really what a gospel community is. Like, as, 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 as much as we want to make it all kinds of other things, or as much as it does all kinds of other things, as much as it's a place of friendship and laughter and, 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 and community and all that kind of stuff, in the end, the hope is that it's a company of spiritual companions whether it's those who are, who are already in this with us or on their way to being in this with us, who share with us the ups and downs of life as we follow Jesus, as apprentices, as we, as we live life with Jesus, as we become like Jesus, as we do what Jesus did. That it's a people who we can say that as part of this faith family, that we're in it with them and they're in it with us. Right? So, we have another thing in there. You'll see that faith practices, but we'll talk about those next week. So let's chat about these little 
things, these activities of ours as a faith family. Um, I have a question for us. Let me throw it up on the screen. Yep. So, we're going to break up into groups. We're going to do a little chitty chat. Right? We've got, got some time here. So, how is cultivating all responsiveness within life from in and to Jesus? How is this different than building life out, building out a life around church? And why does it matter? Because listen, like you can point out the differences, and you can, but it, in your mind, it could be like it doesn't. <laughs> but why does it matter? Why does it matter that church isn't the thing that we orient our life around, but Jesus? And why, in that slightly different phrasing and slightly different thought, does it change things? And what does it change? What can it change? What might it change? Because listen, as a faith family, like I, I know this may seem seem strange, right? Like um, I, I can't tell if it's everybody's tired or or we're I'm just not doing a good job of communicating. Probably a mixture of both. But listen, this is who we are as Christ City, right? This is who we've been for ten years, and who we hope to continue to be is ones who believe and trust that if that you are actually able to follow Jesus to be in awe and response to Jesus, to know Him, to mature in Him, that yes, we need one another, but we need one another only to help us live free. Not to live the life for us, but to help us live the life that God has called us to live. And sometimes that may mean there's seasons of life where your load is a lot heavier and you need some extra help with the burdens, right? And we're here to walk with you in it. But that's all that we are. And, all the, and that all is actually all that our scriptures requires. To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God together. And so, I want to encourage you as we talk about this as a faith family, like, like how do we do that well? <laughs> Where does the rub start to happen? Because listen, in, in a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about budget. Awesome, right? Yeah. That's right. Everybody's favorite. But in all truth, like, what are we budgeting for and why? What is it that we're striving after? Why does it matter? Right? Why does this life of faith that we've been given and the way that we're going about living this life of faith matter? Not just to be different and unique, but because we actually think this is the fruitful life that God has given us. This is a way that we help one another be a part of the kingdom now and forever. And by God's grace, help others enter into that same kingdom and life that we have, right? So, how is cultivating all in response, in, through, and from Jesus, different than building your life around church? Break up into groups of three to five, six, whatever you want to do it. Chat for a little bit, and I'll call us back into communion together, okay? All right, talk amongst yourselves.